Today on The Joys of Binge Reading, Meg Waite Clayton, international best-selling author of The Last Train to London, returns with another haunting wartime story, The Postmistress of Paris. Welcome to The Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series. So you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and on Binge Reading This Week, Meg talks about her latest acclaimed wartime story set in the early days of the Nazi occupation of France. It's a haunting love story of high stakes danger and incomparable courage. It's based on a true story of a young American heiress who helped artists hunted by the Nazis escape war-torn France. As usual, we've got free books for you, a selection of historical romance this week, different from the wartime romance that we featured last week. Links to that can be found on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com, in the show notes for this episode. And don't forget about our bonus content either, like hearing Meg's answers to the getting to know you five quickfire questions by becoming a Binge Reading on Patreon supporter for the cost of less than a cup of coffee a month. You'll also get a monthly newsletter which gives you a heads up on authors who are coming up so you can read them ahead of time. Details at patreon.com forward slash the joys of binge reading. But now, here's Meg. Hello there, Meg, and welcome to the show. It's so good to have you with us. Jenny, it's so delightful to be here. Thank you for sharing your time with me. Now, look, this latest book that you've just recently published, The Postmistress of Paris, it just receives the most amazing um, reception. You've got a whole host of international reviewers who are all eagerly anticipating it and and sort of, you know, hyping it up before it even hits the stands. That's a wonderful place to be in, but you did have quite a good an apprenticeship to get there, didn't you? I did. This is a novel number eight. It's here in the United States, the first one that's been reviewed by the New York Times. So that's my long apprenticeship. But <laughs> I wouldn't have it any other way. It's been a lovely run and a lovely career. And I feel like it's just keeps growing in a lovely way. That's wonderful. Look, the central character of The Postmistress in the book, she's called Nane. She's a wealthy American who stays on in France after war is declared in 1939, partly because she feels it's her home. She's been living there for quite some time. And also because she has this lovely idea, or some might say silly idea, that she quite wants to make a difference in the war effort. And she was based on a real person named Mary Jane Gold, who I had never heard of before your book. Can you tell us a bit about Mary Jane? Yes, absolutely. I will say, uh, for starters, that the character of Nanay is inspired by Mary Jane, but not exactly based on her for a reason I'll tell you about. But the Mary Jane Gold was a real Chicago heiress who was indeed uh, living in Paris when Hitler invaded. And she decided to stay. She was an extraordinary woman. She flew airplanes before people did. And she chose to live kind of outside of the normal parameters of somebody who 
was raised in her kind of wealth and privilege does. And she did indeed stay in France and help Varian Fry's effort to rescue artists and writers and other great thinkers from France after Hitler invaded. She She's a, a wonderful person. She wrote a memoir herself called Crossroads Marseille 1940, which you can still get in French. It's out of print in English. But one of the main differences with Mary Jane Gold is that she... Her real love story was she fell in love with a Marseille mobster, basically a gangster, whose name was Killer, not because he was killing people, but because he killed the English language. It's a lovely story, but it didn't fit into the parameters of what I was trying to do, illuminating this effort to rescue people. And so that's why she's inspired by rather than Nene is inspired by rather than based upon Mary Jane Gold. Interesting little detail about flying planes, though, because Nene does fly planes as well, doesn't she? She does. There are many things that uh, Nene and Mary Jane Gold have in common, including that Vega Gold, which was the real airplane that Mary Jane Gold flew, and the dog Dagobert, who uh, barks uh, Hitler barks whenever, madly whenever Hitler's uh, name is mentioned. I'd like to have made that up, but that was the real Mary Jane Gold's dog did that. It was too beautiful to leave out. <laughs> That's absolutely right. Now, you mentioned the name Varian Fry. He plays a very important role in the story. He is like the secret US coordinator for these people that they're trying to, they're getting them out as refugees before the uh, Germans really manage to clamp down on the country while they're still in transition to the Vichy France. And I had never heard of him either. I didn't realise until I read your footnote at the back that he was a real person. So tell us about him too. He was indeed a real person. He was uh, involved in organizing this effort to go from the United States to send somebody over to take visas and help get people like Picasso and Matisse and Chagall out of France. Hannah Arendt was one of the names on his list. And they couldn't figure out anybody else to do it. So he said, fine, I'll go. He spoke French. He spoke German. He was a, a... writer. but And so it was totally outside of his bailiwick, but he went across and uh, went to France and stayed far longer than he was meant to and really helped rescue about 2,000 people before he was booted from France. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. And the surrealists also play a big part in the, in the story. They are very much the background to the story. And I wondered why you chose particularly the surrealist movement. Nene is very much involved in the Paris art world before the Germans take over, isn't she? She is. I I will read you a quick line from the very first, I think it's the second paragraph of the book, which uh, is Nene's thoughts on surrealism. She's going to see this exhibit. She describes it as 300 artworks depicting gigantic insects, bizarre floating heads, and dismembered or defiled bodies she knew were meant to be thought-provoking, but always left her feeling unsophisticated and far too American. Midwestern, not even from Chicago, but from Evanston. That's really how I feel about the surrealist of art. I found it daunting before I researched for this book. Researching for this book gave me a great appreciation for what they were doing with surrealist art. Nonetheless, I don't think I could hang most of it on my on my walls. It would give me nightmares. <laughs> <laughs> The reason, I chose real, the reason I chose surrealism is because it was the art of the time and it was most of the artists, many of the artists who were rescued in Varian Fry's effort were indeed surrealists. So yes. that's period appropriate. I did wonder if you 
you you had done this research particularly for this book, and that is the case. You did. Yes, indeed, I did. Yes, I'm with you there. I, it's not an art movement that I've ever been naturally drawn to. So at the beginning, it was, you know, oh, my gosh, we're going to do surrealism. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of the real-life artists have parts in the book as well. There's a couple that have reasonably prominent roles, André Breton and Max Anst, for, for, for starters. So um, that obviously was also part of the development of the story. Yes, exactly. I turned to Max Ernst because he was somebody who really was at Camp de Mille, which was this inter- this French internment camp in outside of Aix-en-Provence, where the French first, even before Hitler invaded, interned Jewish refugees, feeling fearful that they would be, you know, spies for the Reich. And so Max Ernst was imprisoned there not once but twice, and his story in that regard is really interesting and very demonstrative. I mean, he was put in this in- in camp, when he when they let him go finally, he could have left and gone to the United States or someplace else. But instead, he chose to stay in France. He just could not imagine that they would arrest him again or anything bad would happen to him. And so he was arrested again and put in the camp. So that's part of the reason he's there because his real story is something I can thread through. And uh, similarly with Andre Breton, he was the leader of the Surrealist movement. He's a really, really fascinating character, and he did indeed live at Camp de Mille. I mean, at Villa Herbel with. Mary Jane Gold and Varian Fry during this period that I write about with his wife and child while he was waiting to try to be gotten out of France. So he was both a great character and true to the real history, which I always like to be as true to the real history as I can. So it's interesting. I didn't realize that Mary Jane had gone to the South and actually lived there with Varian. So that's very much true to your story. Yes, she is indeed the one in real life who rented Villa Herbel, which was this uh, kind of ramshackle old uh, villa uh, outside of Marseille where many of the people involved in this effort lived together. And that was one of the things that really drew me to this story was they lived together, they threw these salons uh, with uh, artists and they played these crazy surrealist games together and they somehow or another managed to have just this incredibly good-spirited time together, actually fun, while at the same time risking their lives in order to help save people. So it was a, such an extraordinary story that it, once I learned of it, it just called to me to write a novel about it. Dare I ask, what happened to Mary Jane in the end? She, the real Mary Jane, or was eventually booted out of France uh, and went back home for the rest of the war, went back to the United States for the rest of the war. After the war was over, she returned to France and lived the rest of her life there. If anybody's interested in hearing more about her, there are a wonderful series of interviews with her on the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum uh, site from when she is toward the end of her life. And they're really extraordinary. She is such an amazing character. And it's lovely to hear her talk about her story from her own, in her own words. Well, that's wonderful. Look, the book before this one has got quite a lot of parallels to the postmistress and also enjoyed very strong international success. And it's a story about, I think it's based in Holland, is it? Is it Holland? It's primarily set in uh, Vienna, Austria, and then in Holland. No, you are absolutely right, though. The rescue in that story, it's a story of the Kinder Transport, which was this fabulous effort that rescued uh, 10,000 children right before, from the Reich, right before the war began. And there was a woman named Truce Weissmuller, whose, that story is based on a real woman, who 
was Dutch and did go into Vienna and uh, did extraordinary things in order to help save these children. So it's set in part in Holland, in part in Vienna, and then in part in England where the that ref- rescue effort was organized. Both of these books emphasize the ability of one person to make a di- difference in desperate times. Very much the case that they both are risking their lives and they both are driven by this conviction that one person can make a difference and they very much prove it. Is that something that really resonates with you? It does. I think one of the reasons I enjoy writing historical fiction in this period is I think that by looking back on what people have done, I at least can be inspired to think about what I can do in the time I live in and be my best person and realize that I think so often we think, well, what can I do? What difference can I make? And it's true that one person often can only make a small difference, but millions of people making small differences together make a big difference. And sometimes one person can make a big difference all on their own, and you never know unless you give it a try. So I find these stories very inspiring myself and hope they will similarly inspire readers. Yes, that brings up the other thing, that they are great adventure stories, they're wonderful emotional stories, but they do have an underlying intellectual content, a a sort of challenge to people to look at their values and how they behave. And one reviewer described it as being both intellectually provocative and emotionally moving. How do you get that balance right when you're writing them? That is a very good question. You know, I will say that so much of writing is instinct, especially in the first draft. You sort of follow where your heart and your brain together take you. But then a huge, huge portion of portion of writing is in the rewriting. So I do go draft after draft after draft trying to get the balance just right. I would say I go through... I mean, for the for the last train to Lennon, I probably went through 50 or more drafts. For the Postmistress of Paris, a few fewer than that, but a lot of drafts. And uh, what I find is I swing too far one way, and then I try to fix it, and I swing too far the other way, and it takes me all those drafts to kind of settle into the middle to the right balance. But thank you. I, I hope I get that balance. I work really hard to do so. Wow, that's remarkable. 50 drafts. Yeah. So how drafts. long does it take you to do that? Well, it, it depends on... A, a few things. Right now I'm working with an editor, Sarah Nelson at Harper, and she's fabulous because I can send her a pretty raw draft and she will uh, look at it and uh, help me help me focus it. Before I was working with her, I really would have to do a lot of that work myself, which would mean I would have to put the manuscript aside for some number of months before I could go back to it. So with Sarah, I can send her, you know, uh, and my husband does the same job for me, but, you know, you can only do that freshly so many times. And so after about five drafts, he, his ideas are less you know, he, he's, he knows what I know, and so he can't see what's not in the manuscript, which is often the hardest part to, to figure out. So, you know, the last one to learn, you know, that one, that one I started researching that uh, literally in 2007, and it came out in 2019, I think. It didn't take me as long to write, but it took me a long time to research because I was very daunted about taking on that story. The Postmistress of Paris was somewhat faster, honestly, in part because I wrote it mostly during a pandemic and there were no distractions. So <laughs> I hadn't, I mean, except for the distraction of having to make yourself sit down and write every day with everything going on, it wasn't like I was flying around the country or the world promoting books or anything like that. And so I would do my writing 
chatting during the day and my promotional Zooms and things like that in the evening. And uh, so it ended up being shockingly a very productive time. Sort of hate to say that in the midst of a pandemic, but it was a very productive, it has been a very productive time for me. That's great, yes. And the last train, it was selected by Nicole Kidman and Reese Witherspoon for their Writers Lab. Has there been any further development with that? Is, is it going on into production anytime soon? Well, I would like to say that it was selected by them. It was actually selected, they, along with Meryl Streep, is I think the main driver of the Writers Lab. There's a group of women in Hollywood who are very interested in in bringing new voices, new female voices into Hollywood writing, uh, movie writing, and uh, TV too. But And so they fund this effort called the Writer's Lab, which they choose a dozen women a year and they bring them all together with a fabulous group of mentors. My mentor was, uh, one of my mentors was Robin Swicourt, who was Oscar nominated for The Tale of Benjamin Button and the Jane Austen Book Club and all sorts of great films. And so she mentored me on the screenplay. It's been a tough time to get uh, a, a story like that made right now because of the pandemic, those big epic films, just the way films are made right now, uh, most films being made are smaller independent films with smaller casts and not a $50 million film like that will be. So fingers crossed, but uh, nothing yet. So have you, we, So you wrote the screenplay. Is that the first screenplay you've written? It's the first screenplay I've written, and it's actually the way I first wrote The Last Train to London. I was very daunted about taking on the story because it is a really important um, story in in the Jewish culture. And I, small little secret, I'm not Jewish. I'm a Gentile. I grew up Irish Catholic in the Midwest of Chicago, Midwest of the United States. So I thought, well, I'll just write it as a screenplay because I don't know what I'm doing and it will be nothing. It will be freeing just to to write something and nothing will ever happen to it, but it'll be fine. I'll get this story out of my system and I can write something that might actually be published. And I had such fun with it, writing the screenplay that I am... It, it causes, I had such fun with it. And also it focuses my writing in a different way so that I'm very focused on uh, what each moment is what each thing that happens, why it's important. And if it's not important, then it doesn't belong in the story. And so it's really made me a much better writer. And I will always write that way from now on going forward. So did you write a screenplay for the the postmistress as well? I did. I wrote a very early version as a screenplay. And then I, I wrote the novel from kind of the outline of the screenplay. And honestly, it's all happened so fast and there's been so much else going on in my life that I have not yet gone back to the screenplay to see if it's anything worth working with. But it, but it did, it was very fun to do it that way. And it did set up, I think, the arc of the story and the characters very well for me. It's interesting because I do think that novel novelists generally are becoming more and more influenced by film and TV because... It's so much part of our world now. You can't ignore it, can you? And our readers are also watching those forms of entertainment and they kind of transfer some of their expectations from film and TV to book. I totally agree with that. I think that we all consume so much media and especially movies and TV now that it shapes the way that we see stories. I'm still a book person. I still prefer to read a story. And if ever there's going to be a movie that I want to see, I always read the book first. I think books 
have more to offer in many ways than film does. But film, you know, you can watch a film in an hour and a half or two hours, and a book takes 10 hours to read. And so just by the very nature of how long it takes, we are, as a society, consuming more. And also you can do movies with friends and, and loved ones. And so I think we are consuming more and more film and TV than we ever did before. Yeah. Look, I was also fascinated by the fact that you've written one of your books. I think it might have even been the one just before Last Train to London was Beautiful Exiles. And it was the story of Martha Galhorn and Ernest Hemingway. I became fascinated by them last year because I read Paula Ryan's take on that story in, in Love, Love and Ruin. Um, sorry, Paula McLean, not Paula Ryan, Paula McLean's Love and Ruin. And I wondered, it's a story that's recently been told a number of times. There's this Nicole Kidman movie about it as well. But you brought something fresh to it. What the reviewers say is that you really made that story come alive in a way that no one else had. How do you do that? Well, I will tell you that that particular novel was a work of stubborn uh, will on my part. <laughs> I uh, started pitching my second novel, which was published in 2008, was uh, a book called The Wednesday Sisters. And I was publishing with a Random House imprint at that time. And my publisher asked me what I wanted to write next. And I said, I have this, I had a couple of stories. One was about World War II women journalists uh, hoping to be the first to uh, li- to be- report the liberation of Paris. And very like that, I mean, one of those journalists was Martha Gellhorn. I said, I also have this great uh, idea for a story for Martha Gellhorn and her first husband, Ernest Hemingway, and their relationship. And I could not, you know, I could not get anybody to bite on that one. And my publisher at the time said, oh, Martha Gellhorn, she's not a very likable character. I was like, what do you mean she's not very likable? She's amazing. But so, so it really took me, I worked on that story for a long time. I have read everything that Martha Gellhorn wrote. I have read all the letters that uh, she wrote that are available. I have been uh, a passionate fangirl of hers for a low these two decades. And so I think just that's, you know, if I bring anything particular to it, it's just a, a really deep knowledge of and love and admiration for her. I think the reviewer said that you'd taken years of research and turned it into something sexy. That's pretty nice, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, they definitely had a sexy relationship and she's definitely a sexy character, so uh, that's fine. (laughs) I really actually liked Nicole Kidman in that movie. I thought that she did a great job of being Martha, so yeah. Yeah, and you mentioned the race for Paris. That also sounded fascinating. And what do you think it is that is drawing our our contemporary readers to World War II. It's enjoyed a tremendous surge in popularity as a a period, hasn't it? It has, and it's really interesting because when I pitched the first uh, World War II book, which was right after The Wednesday Sister, so in 2008, my publisher, who who didn't think that, who I adore, but she didn't think that Martha Gellhorn was an interesting person, and she also didn't think that women would like to read about uh, war, and most of my readers are female. And I kept thinking that's just wrong because the thing about war is it raises the stakes. You just take real human stories and you put them in a high stakes environment and almost by definition you have more narrative drive. But I think part of the reason is because uh, among other things Kristen Hanna's The Nightingale uh, made the world see that women do care about reading about war and that women, stories about women during war are really, really inspiring and we all love inspiring stories. So I think it's as much 
people realizing that women did a lot of things during the war and we don't know about them yet and we want to, that is driving a lot of that. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Look, we are starting to come to the end of our time together. So turning away from the specific books to talk a little bit more about the arc of your career, when you started out with writing, what was your main goal? And I would imagine that by now you've more than surpassed it, but what did you expect when you first started writing? When I first started writing, I had no idea what I was doing. I had uh, pract- I was practicing law, and I didn't, you know, I'd taken the minimum of English courses at university. Literally, I took uh, freshman year classes that were required. Then years later, I took a Tolkien class, pass-fail. I was very daunted by the way that English was uh, taught, but I was always a huge reader, and especially a reader of novels. And what I wanted when I started was to uh, be able to write a novel. And... I was so delighted when my first novel was published, I just cannot tell you. And to have eight novels published now, I feel like I'm just dream- living this dream life and somebody's going to wake me up and I'm going to be very disappointed with, with the real world. <laughs> oh, that's gorgeous. So Meg, as reader, what do you like to read? You mentioned, you know, that you are, you've always been a big reader. We like to get a few recommendations for our listeners Mainly in the genre area because that's what they're reading. But just anything you can mention. Yes, I love I love reading anything that is well written. I love I was a history major in college, and so I love historical books especially. But I read you know Margaret Atwood, both her historicals, which I love, and her kind of speculative fiction, which I also love. I love Alice McDermott, a U.S. writer who writes a lot about being Irish Catholic in America. I am uh, in terms of what I've read lately that's been really amazing. There is a book coming out in the United States by Karen Joy Fowler, who was uh, the first American shortlisted for the Booker Prize. And she has a new one coming out called Booth that is just extraordinary. And Thridi Amargar has a new novel out called Honor. It came out in January that is about the Indian experience and and Indian history and contemporary India that is just beautiful as well. Oh, that's fantastic. Looking back down the tunnel of time, if there was one thing about your career that you'd like to change, what would it be? I think I would have started earlier. But as much as I say that, I'm not sure that I would have had the gumption to stick with it if I had. I'll tell you, it took me 10 years from when I started writing till my first novel was published. And if I hadn't been a woman of a certain age and a certain stubbornness by then, I'm not sure I wouldn't have given up and gone back to the practice of law. So probably even the things I want, I don't really want. I will say that with The Postmistress of Paris has been done so incredibly well. And I wish... My dad. My dad passed away earlier this year, and I wish he would have gotten to see that. Ah, that's lovely. So 10 years before you were first published, that shows remarkable persistence. It turns out to be, you know, if you believe Malcolm Gladwell, the kind of the average amount of time, it's that 10,000 hours that you need or whatever to do anything well. I didn't know what I was doing when I started. I actually had some early success both in publishing short pieces and in getting an agent for my first novel. And then the first novel didn't sell. And it took another uh, five years from when I had my first agent for it till when it actually sold. But I, I think, you know, in this business and writing so much of it's about finding the right person for your work. My best writer friend had 135 rejections from agents before she found an agent. She found an agent, uh, on, you know, she sent him her manuscript on a Friday. 
He called her up Sunday and said he'd like to represent her. By Tuesday, he had a six-figure deal for two books for her. After, and she kept saying, it's the same book that all those other people rejected. So I really think it's really, really important if you want to be a writer to just keep believing in yourself long after your own mother has given up on you. That's that's wonderful advice. But what next, what is next for Meg, the writer? Looking down the next 12 months, what have you got working on at the moment? I have two projects uh, under development right now. I'll tell you that one is set in Paris and is another World War II story. It's based on a true story and it's a book about books. And the other is set, it would be a little different. It's set primarily in Carmel by the sea where I live now. And it would be a book of old Hollywood and the blacklist and the role of women in old Hollywood. And I'm not exactly, they're both kind of tugging at me in equal measure right now. And I'm not sure which one's going to win that tug of war. So we'll have to see. <laughs> but they'll both get written. You just mean which one will get written first. You never, you know, you never know. It's always so much of writing is in the moment what moves you, or at least for me it is in the moment what moves me. If I don't have something that's ripping my own heart out, it's not going to be a good book for me. So it sort of depends uh, on on where my heart is in any particular moment. And when, I, and when you come up from writing a book, you're, at least I am, inevitably a different person than I was when I went into writing it. And so it's hard to say once you come up from a book, what is going to be the next thing you want to write until you get there. So that just really sparks a a question for me, because when I finished The Last Postmistress, I felt as if you'd had a tremendous amount of emotional energy invested in that story. There was so much wonderful detail, and I think particularly of the little girl, Luki, and the little soft toys that she had that became almost like religious objects. They were something that gave her security through all the turbulence of the war and the separation from her father, etc. So could you just tell us if it's not too difficult, how did you change in the writing of that book? Why, how were you different at the end from when you went in at the beginning? You know, the first child that I wrote in any meaningful way in my books was in The Last Train to London. That was a book about kids and rescuing kids. And that really opened up this idea for me that I like to write children. I was really surprised that I like to write children. And what this book did for me was, even though it's kind of in a dark setting, Luki is in some ways a very light character. And I I poured a lot of love into her. And it made me think that I would never, probably never write a book without a child in it somewhere again, because it so fills my own heart. But this is also the first time I ever wrote a dog. Dago Bear's my first dog character ever. And it opened up my world to the possibility that humans are not the only uh, beings worth writing about on this earth. And so that is a little bit of a different perspective for me. That's lovely. That's lovely. So I'm not sure how you like to interact with your readers. I'm sure you like to hear from them in some form or other, but are there ways that you interact with them online or even in person, although that hasn't been so easy in the last 18 months or so? I have to say that I do love meeting readers in person. I think the last time I did that was uh, I went, uh, I was in tour in the Netherlands in Belgium. Just I just got back right as uh, the coronavirus was becoming known. It was in January. And so I really missed that part. I do do a lot of virtual events and I do like that as well. I love hearing from readers and answering questions. And then I hang out online and, and I do love the interaction that we get online. I am 
primarily on Facebook. I'm there under the the moniker Novelist Meg, and I uh, always try to answer questions and in the comments and respond to comments and that kind of thing. I'm also on Instagram, where um, my primary goal there is to uh, make everybody want to live in Carmel because it's so beautiful here. So lots of pictures of Carmel. <laughs> and uh, I'm on Twitter, where I mostly you know talk politics. So if you want to hear my political views, come to Twitter. Oh, that's wonderful, Meg. Look, thank you so much for your time. It's been delightful to be able to chat. My absolute pleasure, Jenny. Thank you again for having me. I really appreciate your sharing your time with me. Next week on The Joys of Binge Reading, a fellow Kiwi author, I'm delighted to say, Catherine Lee, with a new mystery series that's for fans of Anne Cleve's Vera Stanhope series. The Water's Dead is a police procedural introducing Detective Inspector Nairi Bradshaw and a murder mystery set in small town New Zealand. Look out for it on The Joys of Binge Reading next week. But that's now it for today. Get advance warning of the books that are coming up on the show so you can read them ahead of time and be all set to listen to the authors by subscribing to Binge Reading on Patreon for exclusive bonus content. That's patreon.com forward slash the joys of binge reading. Bye now and happy reading.